Welcome to the Saltwater Strangers Pacific Series, a product of the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to academics, strategists and maritime professionals from across the region on the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series is proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. When you have increasing strategic competition, you run the risk that uh, this type of cooperation might be diminished. The fact that the Solomon Islands has uh, closed its uh, ports to the entrance of uh, vessels that were engaged in fisheries patrol on its behalf and on the behalf of other Pacific Island uh, countries is a significant concern and it highlights uh, what damage that kind of competition might do. Professor Stuart Kayes had a distinguished legal career with an extensive background in the law of the sea and international law. Stuart is currently the Director and Professor of Law within the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security and has held significant positions across many of Australia's premier academic institutions. Stuart Kay was appointed to the International Hydrographic Organisation's Panel of Experts on Maritime Boundary Delimitation in 1995 and in 2000 was appointed to the list of arbitrators under the Environmental Protocol to the Antarctic Treaty. Stuart was Chair of the Australian International Humanitarian Law Committee from 2003 to 2009, for which he was awarded the Australian Red Cross Society Distinguished Service Medal. He was elected a Fellow of the Royal Geographic Society in 2007 and a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Law in 2011. Stuart Kay has served as a commander with the Royal Australian Navy and has written a number of books, including books on Australia's Maritime Boundaries, the Torres Strait, International Fisheries Management, Freedom of Navigation in the Indo-Pacific Region, and over a hundred other books, articles and chapters. Stuart, thank you for joining us here at the Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series as we discuss the maritime security challenges impacting the Pacific. Thanks very much, Jen. Stuart, it's been an interesting week this week in news relating to maritime security in the Pacific with the occurrence of the White House Pacific Summit. Historical in terms of Pacific engagement for the US, over 12 Pacific leaders have visited the White House to discuss, amongst other things, maritime security. One of the things that came out in that discussion is reference to the importance of the Law of the Sea Convention. And I want to touch on that a little bit with you, given your background. What is abundantly clear during many of these discussions and reference in the declaration from the White House Summit this week is the important relationship between the law of the sea and maritime security. Given your extensive maritime law background, would you mind touching on the nature of this relationship and how it manifests in the Pacific? Yes, certainly it is an important relationship because ultimately it's the law of the sea that provides the basis for maritime jurisdiction, literally what waters each state can bring under its control. Uh, These waters can extend up to 200 nautical miles and for certain areas of continental shelf even beyond 200 nautical miles. And that's a a pretty fair distance. It means a, a large proportion of the world's oceans are under national jurisdiction. And for the states in the uh, Pacific, uh, many of them are small island states, but they have very large areas of maritime jurisdiction around them, some of the largest in the world. And uh, therefore, the maritime jurisdiction about them is uh, very, very important. Now, these areas of, of water that states can assert control over are also important in terms of the resources which they possess. Uh, about 40% of the world's uh, petroleum production comes from offshore fields. And all of that comes from that 200 nautical mile belt around uh, uh, land. 
in addition of all the world's fisheries, about 90% of the world wild fish catch is also caught in that 200 nautical mile belt, with the remainder being tuners that are, are caught in uh, uh, waters beyond. Uh, all the world's aquaculture is also in that belt. So we're talking about a, a massive quantity of resources uh, in areas under national jurisdiction. As well, uh, the waters are uh, important for other reasons. Much of the world's uh, movement of cargo uh, is done by sea. And for Australia, this is particularly evident uh, in that uh, about 99% of our uh, cargoes uh, uh, that we export to the world or that we uh, import into the country come to us by sea, at least by weight. And by value, the number is still about 98%. And uh, almost all our internet traffic and uh, international telephony flows through submarine cables. So the oceans represent uh, an important uh, place in which uh, the business of our country and other countries around us uh, takes place. And without the guarantees that the Law of the Sea Convention gives us to allow for the free movement of these goods and ships uh, backwards and forwards, uh, our economy would be in a pretty terrible state and indeed the world economy would be severely disrupted. As we saw when the Suez Canal was even briefly uh, locked up by that uh, vessel uh, managing to park itself uh, sideways in the canal uh, for only a matter of days. Thanks, Stuart. It is an incredibly interesting relationship and I think often lost on many, uh, including many Australians, just how dependent we are uh, on the oceans that surround us and the law that governs that. Given that significant relationship, can you expand on a concept that's often mentioned at the moment referring to lawfare and how is this playing out in the Pacific? Lawfare is a, a term that personally I, I, I don't like particularly much because it uh, uh, is obviously a play on words, uh, but uh, it's um, a, a term which is often used to describe uh, actions where states will uh, try to um, bend the rules, uh, try to push the envelope of, uh, of what might be possible under the rules and thereby undermine the international system that's been agreed uh, since the 1980s for the regulation of the law of the sea. Now, uh, this concept finds itself uh, played out in some parts of the Pacific uh, with what might be described as uh, grey zone tactics uh, where, uh, for example, uh, large numbers of uh, Chinese fishing vessels have been known to turn up in parts of the South China Sea in an effort to uh, block uh, otherwise lawful activities. So when the Philippines, for example, is wanting to resupply an island which it uh, occupies, large numbers of Chinese vessels might uh, impede the uh, uh, ability of the resupply vessel to be able to, to reach its destination in a manner that's not consistent at all with international law. This kind of um, undermining uh, behaviour is dangerous because the law of the sea provides us with substantial guarantees for freedom of navigation that allows our trade and uh, our ships to be able to uh, uh, move about the world. And uh, if these rules were to be undermined, this would be uh, of great concern. It is uh, it's an interesting example that you uh, provide there about the Chinese fishing fleets. Are you seeing other examples of law of the sea issues playing out in respect to the obvious strategic competition that's going on in the region? And do you think that uh, reliance on the law of the sea can assist in managing the strategic competition in the Pacific? Yes, certainly. There are other areas where uh, freedom of navigation particularly is placed under pressure. 
with uh, uh, states looking to restrict the passage of uh, warships or even other vessels in certain circumstances uh, passing through waters near their coasts. And uh, this uh, potentially is uh, a source of great uh, danger because uh, it would uh, impact upon world trade and it would also impact upon the ability of uh, navies to uh, move freely around the world. Uh, It would substantially damage the possibilities of coalition operations, for example, uh, where uh, fleets of of one uh, state uh, would find it difficult reaching another in a timely fashion if uh, certain choke points were, uh, were cut off. The Law of the Sea Convention provides a, a basis to try to manage this kind of uh, behaviour uh, because in waters uh, close to the coast, in the territorial seas or archipelagic waters of uh, archipelagic states, uh, there are guarantees of freedom of navigation which are, are very, very important and ensure that uh, this kind of uh, trade and kind of movement by navies isn't restricted. And so it can be very useful in uh, providing a baseline set of rules for how uh, states will uh, cooperate uh, and uh, what their obligations are. And uh, that in turn can uh, reflect back to try to uh, diminish uh, opportunities for the kind of lawfare activities I referred to earlier. The signing of the security pact between the Solomon Islands and China in May of this year caused great concern within Australian security circles and was a key topic of conversation during the Australian election. Given this, it was no surprise that the August decision of the Solomon Islands to announce a temporary moratorium on visits by foreign naval vessels having turned away US Coast Guard cutter was all over the news in Australia. Although this specific issue referred to the entry of a warship into a port, there are some countries within the Indo-Pacific region that have formed the view that UNCLOS, or the Law of the Sea Convention, provides for the right to restrict warships more generally. Given our discussion on freedom of navigation and how important it is to maritime security and the nature of this public incident, can you touch on whether countries have the right to restrict the navigation of warships in their maritime zones? In short, no. Um, The Law of the Sea Convention provides uh, guarantees of uh, freedom of navigation uh, through uh, certain maritime zones. Within the territorial sea or archipelagic waters, uh, there are guarantees of uh, what's referred to as innocent passage or archipelagic sea lanes passage. Uh, And indeed, through international straits, uh, particularly important choke points like the Straits of Malacca or the Straits of Hormuz, uh, there's also a regime known as transit passage. Now, each of these uh, regimes provides for guarantees of uh, freedom of navigation with certain limitations. Uh, Those guarantees uh, provide that as long as a warship is not engaged in threatening behaviour or is engaged in doing things like broadcasting propaganda or jamming local communications, it should have the right to be able to pass through uh, in a a manner which is consistent with uh, expeditious passage that doesn't have any unnecessary stops uh, or proceeds too slowly uh, through the waters. And indeed, even for international straits and certain archipelagic waters, uh, these rights extend to uh, aircraft, including uh, state aircraft. Now, the Law of the Sea Convention uh, reflects uh, international law in this regard. Uh, Back in the 1940s, the International Court of Justice confirmed that uh, warships uh, have guaranteed rights of innocent passage without seeking the permission of a coastal state in order to be able to exercise those rights. 
In the waters beyond the territorial sea, out to 200 nautical miles for the exclusive economic zone, there are guarantees of freedom of navigation, as if those waters are uh, high seas waters by virtue of Article uh, 58 of the uh, Convention. This is uh, uh, often not uh, well understood or at least uh, ignored by some states who purport to try to restrict uh, warships from entering either their territorial sea or their exclusive economic zone without some form of permission or authority being granted. But there's no basis in international law for those types of restrictions. A coastal state can have uh, limited restrictions to close off an area for an essential security purpose on a temporary basis, or it can set up uh, things like a traffic separation scheme or other uh, navigational uh, restrictions on uh, vessels passing through areas. But this can't be done in such a way as to cut these areas off indefinitely uh, because ultimately the right of innocent passage through the territorial sea is uh, what's most important. Stuart, do you think we're seeing an increasing trend both globally uh, and in the Pacific of countries seeking to restrict the movement of warships? And if we are seeing that trend, what do you think the impact is on maritime security? Look, this has been an issue for quite some time and there are a number of states that seek to... uh, Uh, restrict the movement of warships through their waters. I'm not sure the number has grown dramatically in recent years, but uh, efforts to try to uh, restrict such movement, uh, particularly by uh, larger states, uh, most notably China, have been uh, increasing in recent years. And that that perhaps makes this a little more uh, noticeable. The impact of doing this kind of thing of itself uh, doesn't have Uh, a dramatic effect, as long as the states who are told to stop uh, don't comply. Uh, Were states to uh, agree to these types of restriction, it might ultimately undermine the law of the sea convention. For states that uh, don't wish to have the convention undermined, and in this way uh, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and uh, others uh, strongly uh, in support of uh, the guarantees that the convention provides with respect to navigation, Now, these states don't accept these types of restriction and typically uh, respond by uh, continuing their voyage through uh, the uh, waters that are uh, contested. But ultimately, were states to uh, give in to these kinds of uh, restrictions, it it would uh, potentially create rules of custom uh, that would uh, uh, give these restrictions some legal force. And I don't think that's in anybody's interest. Stuart, I touched on briefly at the beginning of the podcast that there is a, what appears to be a significant uh, US Pacific Islands uh, forum occurring at the White House at the moment. And as part of that forum, they've released a nine-point statement that touches on many aspects, including health security, cybersecurity, and maritime security. And linking to maritime security, they've talked about the impact of climate change on the Pacific Island nations. And I note in the 2021 Pacific Islands Forum, they announced a declaration on preserving maritime zones in the face of climate change related to sea level rise. The Pacific Islands Forum in 2021 stated that it was the position of the members of the Pacific Islands Forum that maintaining maritime zones established in accordance with the Convention and rights and entitlements that flow from them, notwithstanding climate change related sea level rise, is supported by both the Convention and the legal principles underpinning it. Essentially, what they were saying is that even if countries' baselines change, so the size of the island changes, the maritime zones associated with the island should be fixed. Stuart, given the importance of climate change in both the nine-point declaration released this week from the US and the Pacific Island countries, 
and how frequently it has been discussed in the Pacific Islands Forum. What do you see as some of the maritime security issues that are arising from climate change in the Pacific? Well, certainly a number of states in the Pacific uh, and uh, particularly those states that are dominated with their land territory in in low-lying atolls, places like Tuvalu and uh, Kiribati or Marshall Islands, uh, these states are concerned that uh, if there was a substantial rise in sea level, that some of their land territory would disappear. And the Law of the Sea Convention provides that you get maritime jurisdiction uh, measured from the land that you possess. So these states face, a, in theory, an existential problem that if their islands disappear underwater, their maritime jurisdiction disappears. And as you've indicated, they made a, a declaration uh, in 2021 arguing that they uh, should be able to maintain their areas of maritime jurisdiction as they are today. And a number of Pacific Island states have already done this. Both Kiribati and the Marshall Islands, for example, have lodged declarations indicating how wide their exclusive economic zone is today. So in the event that any of their islands were to disappear underwater or be washed away, uh, that they would uh, be able to retain that jurisdiction. That's at least the theory. It's untested as to whether it would work, but um, there hasn't been much of a a reaction uh, in the negative to the declaration. And if it remains as it is uh, for many years, it it may even become a rule of customary international law. So to that extent, it's uh, uh, an important issue that they might lose jurisdiction. Uh, But I'd submit there are other maritime security issues that uh, could come from climate change that are perhaps more urgent albeit not as existential. Uh, One would be, for example, the loss of arable land as a result of uh, inundation by uh, salt water. Some small island communities rely very heavily on um, root crop production and uh, taro beds might be inundated with salt water and become unproductive and this could uh, see individuals' uh, food supply being uh, damaged and harmed. More generally, uh, were changes in uh, water temperature to affect uh, the uh, patterns of tuna, say perhaps driving them to the uh, eastern half of the Pacific Ocean instead of uh, right across the Pacific, that would mean that uh, the revenue that uh, many of these states derive from uh, licensing their tuna stocks uh, to allow others to catch them, uh, their largest single source of uh, foreign-derived uh, revenue in their economies, Uh, If those fish go somewhere else as a result of climate change, then these states' uh, financial situation, their economies would be uh, tremendously damaged. And so uh, whilst the loss of jurisdiction is a thing that that grabs the headlines, I'd submit that the damage to uh, uh, the ability of uh, local people to secure their food supply or the undermining of a state's economy by virtue of uh, fishery patterns uh, being changed Uh, are likely to become problems uh, far sooner than uh, a loss of physical jurisdiction and therefore perhaps uh, uh, more urgent challenges that uh, all need to consider. When we talk about maritime security in the Pacific, uh, climate change is often mentioned by the Pacific Island countries themselves and you've touched on there some of the key reasons why, which extend well beyond the impact on maritime zones. Do you think that the perception of the Pacific Island countries that some of these impacts of climate change aren't being actively managed is an inroad creating some of the tensions relating to strategic competition in the region? 
Look, I think it hasn't uh, helped, uh, if I can put it that way. Certainly there was a perception in the Pacific that the uh, uh, policies of the uh, Morrison government were not as um, well disposed towards combating climate change as they might be. And therefore, these states of the Pacific were concerned that Australia was not doing enough uh, to combat climate change. And therefore, some states uh, uh, began to uh, entertain overtures from, uh, from others, most notably China, in that space. Uh, I'm not sure how realistic that is as a basis for making those decisions given that the uh, volume of uh, fossil fuel production and the uh, uh, rate at which Australia produces uh, greenhouse gases is much, much lower than uh, China in uh, absolute terms and therefore changes in Australian policy would have a lot uh, smaller effect on climate change than perhaps changes in Chinese policy. But nevertheless, it created an impression in the Pacific that Australia was not sympathetic to um, concerns that they viewed as being of the highest level. Certainly with the uh, change in uh, government in Australia, that perception is less likely to be entertained in that way. And it will be interesting to see if uh, there is still the uh, same level of strategic competition uh, or otherwise um, in the wake of that change. Certainly with respect to uh, the Solomon Islands, it doesn't appear to have uh, uh, wrought any significant alteration in the attitude of the Solomons uh, with respect to these issues. Uh, whether it has uh, an effect on states that are even more concerned about climate change, uh, such as uh, Kiribati or Tuvalu, remains to be seen. Uh, but I'd like to think that Australia's diplomatic efforts in the Pacific, regardless, uh, reflect increasing concern of Pacific issues and should be favourably received in that quarter. Turning to another issue that was also mentioned in the US Pacific Islands Summit this week, where they talked about climate change and maritime security, under the same guise, they also talked about the impact of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. We've mentioned earlier in this podcast the reference to the US Coast Guard cutter that was denied diplomatic clearance to enter Honiara. It's notable that that ship had been participating in an operation called Operation Island Chief which is a U.S. operation conducted annually by the Pacific Islands Forum's Fisheries Agency, focused on countering illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, or IUF. IUF is a topic that we touched on briefly in our first episode of this limited Pacific series. How prolific do you think IUF is in the Pacific? Look, I think IUU fishing is a, a problem uh, in the Pacific. It's a problem everywhere around the, uh, around the globe. How big a problem it is 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 hard to gauge. Uh, the most important stocks in the um, Central Pacific are the tuna stocks. The various tuna species uh, represent one of the uh, most valuable stocks in monetary terms anywhere in the world. And as I've already mentioned, they're uh, vitally um, important to the economies of uh, a number of states, uh, particularly those uh, Pacific Island states uh, clustered around the equator. Uh, these states rely very heavily on the revenues from licensing fishing activities for these tuna stocks. Now, whereas tuna stocks in some parts of the world, particularly in the Atlantic, have been under tremendous pressure and are designated uh, as being uh, uh, potentially at risk by the um, Food and Agriculture Organisation of the UN, uh, happily the FAO's view of the Pacific uh, tuna fisheries are that they are in robust health. And this suggests that while there may be IUU fishing going on, that certainly the uh, stocks themselves are well managed. 
And uh, whilst we don't want levels of illegal fishing to increase, in fact, we want them to be reduced, certainly it hasn't reached the point where it appears to be negatively impacting upon the viability of the stocks, uh, which is encouraging. Yes, that's certainly encouraging. And uh, interesting noting how much IUF is talked about in relation to maritime security in the Pacific. Given your comments, what do you think are some of the challenges in dealing with IUF in the Pacific? I think the most significant problem uh, in dealing with it in the Pacific is a capacity issue. The states of the Pacific tend to have very, very large areas of uh, exclusive economic zone under their jurisdiction, uh, but they have typically very small populations. Uh, So somewhere like uh, Kiribati, for example, has millions of square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, uh, but only one patrol vessel to uh, actively surveil and enforce its law with respect to uh, IUUF uh, in uh, the waters of its exclusive economic zone. For other states, it's not quite as extreme, but it's still in the order of hundreds of thousands of square kilometres for each vessel that they possess. And this isn't uh, going to lend itself to uh, uh, effective uh, patrol. These states also don't typically have air assets that they can uh, use to supplement their uh, at-sea capability. And therefore, uh, capacity is a huge problem. Now, Australia's long recognised this and uh, has been the largest provider of uh, patrol vessels to the states of the the Pacific. Uh, Originally a program back uh, some decades ago as the Pacific Patrol Boat uh, Program and now in its uh, second phase with the uh, uh, delivery of uh, a whole series of brand new Guardian class uh, patrol boats uh, taking place uh, even as uh, as we speak at the moment. Uh, and that's designed to try to combat capacity, which is, uh, which is very, very important. Similarly, the kind of operation that the US Coast Guard with Operation Island Chief, and it's by no means the only uh, operation, there are a number of these that are, are conducted as joint operations, uh, including uh, arguably the other quad, uh, the US, France, Australia and New Zealand, uh, cooperating with respect to fisheries enforcement and uh, fisheries surveillance uh, in the Pacific, is all designed to try to offset this uh, tremendous problem of capacity or lack of capacity that these uh, these states have. Uh, the other thing that uh, uh, is a challenge in the Pacific, but uh, they've been able to rise to try to uh, combat quite well, is the uh, concept of uh, data and data sharing. In the context of fisheries, this is usually referred to as monitoring, control and surveillance uh, rather than the uh, uh, more traditional naval term of uh, maritime domain awareness. Now, for an MCS uh, uh, point of view, the Pacific presents huge challenges, but there's increasing use of uh, satellite data and there's a uh, uh, an important hub at the uh, FFA's headquarters in Honiara, uh, which provides for uh, that form of electronic surveillance uh, to assist states in being able to deploy their very limited assets in being able to respond to things. And uh, that level of cooperation is perhaps uh, the greatest uh, in any ocean area in the world. And it's a great credit to states in the Pacific uh, with their support from uh, uh, regional and extra-regional partners uh, that uh, that that level of cooperation uh, is uh, present. Thanks, Stuart. And I can imagine that that level of cooperation in uh, either traditional maritime domain awareness or monitoring, control and surveillance, as you mentioned, with respect to IUF, uh, is also having positive dividends with respect to maritime security in general in the region. 
Linking back to IUF for a moment, are you seeing any indication or have you seen any indication of an overall impact of IUF on maritime security in general, whether that's linking to maritime crime or other aspects of maritime security? Look, I think there's um, certainly some evidence that uh, there are links between uh, IUF and uh, other criminal activity. If you're engaged in uh, one form of uh, crime, it's uh, not a huge step to engage in others, and some of these can be quite remunerative. Uh, Also, fishing vessels uh, uh, tend to follow uh, irregular courses. They don't follow uh, designated routes, uh, which means it's a a lot easier if you're going to use a uh, fishing vessel for nefarious purposes, such as uh, smuggling of uh, drugs or uh, weapons uh, or other uh, contraband uh, to avoid uh, taxation or duties, that fishing vessels are quite useful for this. They have uh, large holds that they can hold a lot of uh, goods, And as I say, they can uh, make their way around the world uh, using routes that wouldn't be typically used by by other vessels. There's uh, increasing evidence that uh, the drug trade from South America is uh, finding its way across the Pacific uh, to a much greater extent than it was um, uh, some years, some decades ago. Uh, there have been examples of uh, uh, small yachts as well uh, being used in this trade, uh, making journeys from South American ports uh, across to uh, some of the islands in the Pacific. Uh, there's been incidents in places like Tonga, for example, when vessels have come alongside and sought to offload drugs. Uh, so these types of security concern are increasing. And uh, certainly, IUU fishing is uh, one way that uh, this type of concern uh, is made manifest and uh, provides another vector for this kind of illegal activity to take place. That's interesting, Stuart, and it certainly uh, demonstrates the complexity of the maritime security space uh, in the Pacific. But drawing back to some of the points we made earlier with respect to strategic competition, I'd like to ask... What do you see as the implications of this increased strategic competition in the Pacific on maritime security in general? Look, I think its its principal uh, concern is that it will dull cooperation. And cooperation is uh, very strong in the Pacific. Uh, cooperation with respect to fisheries, even fisheries enforcement through uh, a mechanism known as the New Aid Treaty, uh, is uh, amongst the best in the world. It's uh, a great credit to everyone that this level of cooperation is taking place. But when you have increasing strategic competition, you run the risk that uh, this type of cooperation might be diminished. And the fact that the Solomon Islands has uh, closed its uh, ports Uh, to the entrance of uh, vessels that were engaged in fisheries patrol on its behalf and on the behalf of other Pacific Island uh, countries is a significant concern and it highlights uh, uh, what damage that kind of competition uh, might do. It's certainly not in anybody's interest to uh, uh, see fewer patrols with respect to, uh, to fishing. One of the reasons the cooperation has been so effective is that uh, whilst Australia has been an important partner in working in the Pacific uh, on these issues with the Pacific Island countries, Australia is not a distant water fishing nation fishing in these waters, which means Australian cooperation doesn't come with any strings attached uh, in the context of fisheries. Australia isn't seeking access to tuna stocks. Australia isn't seeking access for its fishing boats uh, to uh, be engaged in wide-ranging fishing activities across the Pacific. And so that meant Australia is very much an honest broker and uh, its motives weren't being questioned. 
on the other hand, with the increased Chinese activity, China is very interested in fishing for tuna in the Pacific. Uh, it's one of the largest distant water fishing nations and it pays for that access uh, to the, the Pacific. I'm not suggesting the Chinese are robbing the states of the Pacific by any means. But uh, certainly uh, the Chinese have an interest in wanting to retain access to those uh, fish stocks and uh, maybe uh, less interested in uh, some of the broader concerns about uh, preservation of those stocks than perhaps uh, Australia does uh, because Australia doesn't have the same interest in the fisheries uh, that uh, uh, China would. And so to that extent, uh, Australia, I'm sure, would not want to see increased uh, competition dull the cooperation uh, that has been uh, worked at uh, so assiduously over the last 30 or more years and uh, undermine the good work that uh, has been done. Thanks, Stuart. That is uh, certainly an important point in terms of cooperation. And it seems from uh, our conversation here today that cooperation is the key to all of the complex elements of maritime security that we have been discussing impacting the Pacific region. Professor Stuart Kay, thank you so much for joining us here at the Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series and talking to us about some of the complex maritime security issues impacting the Pacific region. Thanks, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Our guest today on the Saltwater Strategist was Professor Stuart Kay. Stuart is the director of the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security and has published extensively on maritime security challenges around the globe, including the Pacific region. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following the Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on our website, naturalinstitute.com.au follow us on facebook twitter linkedin or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website a big thank you to our podcast sponsor bae systems whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security in the pacific i'm jen parker thanks for listening